Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hi, welcome to another session on the Prison Mindfulness Summit. My name is Fleet Mall. I'm your co-host for this session, and I'm thrilled to be here today with Micah Anderson from MBA. Welcome, Micah. It's great to be here. Thanks, Fleet. Appreciate it. So I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, The work of uh, MBA Project has been so important over decades now, and I was privileged to have some involvement with the organization Oh, probably 20 years ago. And uh, but you've always uh, been connected with us at Prison Dharma Network. And we've always really admired uh, the work that you've been doing with uh, with youth uh, all over the Bay Area for so long. And uh, so really interested to see what what's happening now and uh, learn more about you and and your work. So I'm going to share your bio and then we'll jump right into the conversation. Sound good? Great, please. Thank you. So born in Connecticut. Mike Anderson spent several of his teen years in and out of placements due to struggles with drugs, crime, and anger. Around this time, he was introduced to 12-step fellowship, and after extensive travel overseas, began a personal meditation practice in the early 1990s. He is now the clinical director of Mind-Body Awareness Project, which transforms at-risk communities and those who serve them with mindfulness-based mental health tools that support equity, healing, and empowerment. Mike is a licensed marriage and family therapist, focusing on both trauma-informed approaches and mindfulness-based interventions. He has led retreats and trainings on mindfulness, emotional literacy, and mental wellness in multiple countries, and has served thousands of incarcerated people in the San Francisco Bay Area. He lives in Oakland, California with his wife and two children, and received his master's in psychology from Sophia University in Palo Alto, California. So we heard a little bit in your bio, uh, kind of how you got into med. You had your own struggles when you were young. Um, you found your way into a twelve-step recovery fellowship, and then somehow you got interested in meditation. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that. And then, you know, how did you eventually end up uh, getting involved in uh, prison work or work with in- work with incarcerated youth? Yeah, yeah, I love the question. Um... You know, the, this this story is really linked to my 12-step involvement, right? Because, um, you know, by the time I was 17, 18, I had already had a year clean under my belt, um, was starting to get involved in, you know, in helping run 12-step communities and, and um, you know, meetings. And it was there, you know, one of the steps they talk about, a, um, you know, using prayer or meditation to increase a conscious contact. They would say God, right? And right. A conscious contact with God. And you know, I was always interested in that. I came from a you know, Christian background and upbringing. Um, and that, was, that really sparked something in me. And, and I was in Connecticut at the time, and I started sitting with a, um, it was a Korean Zen um, group there. And, and that was my first taste um, at that age. It was probably, again, 18, 19, I started kind of getting into um, Buddhist meditation. Um, and at the same time, um, due to my service work in 12-step groups, I started going, working with H&I, which is hospitals and institutions, right? Mm-hmm. right? So that was the first time I stepped foot into a juvenile hall. Uh, it was probably around 17, 18. And I was there as a speaker, 
right at one of these uh, at one of these meetings for the youth and it was you know super chaotic and you know the kind of stuff that you would you know see back then but it was it was really the first taste i had with going into an institution and and working with incarcerated populations and um that seed kind of stayed buried for about a decade. Um, I did some, as it, as it said in the bio, um, some retreat time overseas and did some travel in, in India, Nepal, and Thailand um, with some friends. And we were, you know, kind of pursuing meditation practice there. Um, and then when I got back, those very people who I was traveling with um, started Mind Body Awareness Project. So it was kind of a natural wow. flow from there. Um, and then they, you know, started building. And as the organization grew, kind of put me on and I started as a volunteer and then started climbing my way up the, the ranks, so to speak. Um, so that's a yeah, little bit of light on, on that question. Yeah. yeah, that's wow. That's great. Quite a journey. And I, I deeply resonate with that during my own journey with incarceration of 14 years. I, uh, the 12 step work was really important part of my own recovery and transformation process. I had actually found meditation and Buddhism much earlier, but had this whole shadow side going with addiction mm-hmm. and alcohol and all the rest of it coming mm-hmm. out of the cult, you know, the counterculture of the sixties and seventies. And so it was really when I got locked up that I was able to stop all the craziness, get clean and get into recovery and do that work. And, and the people that came in were, had a profound impact on me because you know, we had a regular meditation group that, that I led in the chapel twice a week for 14 years. And we had a few outside volunteers that would come in now and then. Wasn't a, we were in Springfield, Missouri. Wasn't a hotbed for Buddhism. Still isn't probably. Yeah, right. right. Considered one of the, bio, the buckles of the Bible belt. And uh, um, uh, but the 12 the step volunteers that came in, they were from both Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. You know, when you were in the room with them, it was just you were a human being. You know, and, and when you're locked up, that's a big deal because, you know, the system is not treating you like a human being. And you were just there. You were just a fellow addict, a fellow drunk. And they had no pretensions. They had, you know, the humor, the camaraderie, the straightforwardness, the directness and just being, you know, it's like you weren't in prison for that hour. And uh, and and I remember some of the guest speakers they brought in over the years, really, you know, really powerful. So I can imagine you coming in as a guest speaker, uh, someone who turned their own life around and had their own struggles as a youth and then got into recovery. It just, it just has so much credibility and has so much, uh, so much power to influence uh, young people. So, and I'm sure that's still, uh, still the case today as you go into facilities. Yeah, it certainly is. It's interesting as you were talking fleet, you know, just about the, you know, I think, uh, you know, kind of the collaborative nature of AA and NA, right. It's much less a top down kind of right. structure, yeah. right. Very unique in that um, And I, I can't help but reflect on what an influence that still is on myself and the groups, even though I don't attend, you know, I'm not in 12 step fellowship anymore. Um, just this idea of this being our group and our community, not me coming in as the expert and, you know, with an opinion or something that I, you know, I have to see this change, right? Cause there's a, you know, especially with incarcerated youth, there's a lot of finger pointing. Right. It's just like, you know, you're on the road to ruin. You're, uh, you know, you're screwing your life up, you know, the kind of scared straight kind of stuff. Right. Which we know doesn't work. Right. right? So this other research is pretty clear on that. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) For sure. Right. So this other tact of, you know, kind of going in and it's one of our I think one of our real important um, it's an ethos that we carry is collaboration. Because we know a lot of these youth, the, the trauma 
that they've experienced, right? And the trauma takes away power. It takes away a cohesive narrative. It takes away the ability to feel like you're even wanted someplace. So I think that there's real power in that peer, that kind of peer-led group from that, that AA has. Yeah, I'm also not in the fellowship. I actually miss it a lot. But when I got out of prison, I'm so deeply involved in my own Buddhist path. You can kind of only follow so many paths at once. And that's right, people, right. that is their spiritual path to 12-step work. And, you know, if I ever got in trouble with substances or alcohol again, I'd be right back there because it's a it's an amazing program, but I have written about it. And I think it deserves more intention because uniquely it's this global movement that is non-hierarchical, completely yep. service oriented. It has a very loose governmental structure, which is all about just getting the books printed and yep. kind of, you know, and, and it's really a leaderless. And, and, and the two founders, uh, Bill W. and Dr. Bob, you know, could have made it about themselves and could have totally. been these kind of, you know, and, uh, but they just turned it over and stepped out of the way and it became this global non-hierarchical movement. So at the global level, as well as the way meetings are organized, and it's really non-hierarchical ownership empowerment model, it is really unique. And I think it deserves a lot more attention, I think, than maybe it gets in the world. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So um, maybe you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, what you described uh, one of the advantages of that kind of non-hierarchical approach, and it's us, the circle, and so forth, um, is it, it it facilitates relationship. It re- facilitates eyeball to eyeball relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, the social sciences literature is pretty clear that the leading contributor to the impact, to the effect in any change program, although the content, the curriculum, the interventions can have power, the most powerful part of any intervention is the relationship of the facilitators with the with the people going to, going through the program. It's the relationship. And uh, and so so that's so key. And I was always very impressed when I went I went into Alameda County facility several times with with some of the MBA uh, guys mm. at that time, the facilitators. And I was going into the, the, the men's group. So there weren't any women when I went in. But um, uh, was they had this uncanny ability to get in relationship with these kids. That's right. You know, when you go into these facilities, it can be really wild and crazy and tough to get people's attention. And there's all kinds of stuff going on. And, you know, the, often the institution isn't really that supportive of the group and everything interferes, even if they are things, there's noise and loudspeakers going off. And then, yep. you know, the young people, you know, they're <laughs> being young and plus a lot of them have a lot of trauma and plus they're in a crazy place. And so, you know, to be able to come in there and actually get in relationship, um, with these young people, uh, to me, takes, uh, you know, it's an incredible skill. And I, I've always admired how either Mind Body Awareness Project is just amazing at discovering these amazing facilitators, or they do a good job of training or both. But I was always impressed with that. And I wonder if you could talk more about that relationship and also uh, the idea of bringing mindfulness to, uh, you know, people who've suffered trauma, who've been marginalized. Uh, as individuals and as communities doing that in a trauma informed, trauma sensitive way. Yeah, no, I love, I love, I love what you're saying. It comes, it, what comes to mind is the thing I learned in school, right? Uh, I think it's a Rogerian, like Carl Rogers principle, right? This mm-hmm. idea that the relationship is the intervention, mm-hmm. right? We could pull out all this fancy stuff and right. DBT and CBT and a mindfulness, this and journaling and which again, like to your point, it can be helpful. Right. But as you pointed out, the research shows it really comes down to the relationship, empathy, compassion. Like Mm -hmm. these are these are the things that actually I've seen institute change. Right. Um, No matter what the curriculum might be. 
Um, it's funny, you know, so, someone who, you know, interviews new volunteers and, and um, you know, facilitators, the thing I've started looking for over the years is actually not someone who's equipped or has like a substantial mindfulness practice. Because mm-hmm. those people are easy to find, right? Even people who can teach mindfulness. But can you connect with another human being? Mm-hmm. Like to me, that's something that can't be taught, right? Whereas like if someone comes in and I see that they're, you know, have an experience with teacher teaching and they have experience with youth and building with youth and authenticity to me, that's goes way more than someone, for example, who has 10 years meditation practice Mm -hmm. and maybe even went through a teacher training program, right? Mm -hmm. Because we know that doesn't necessarily mean that you know how to connect with another youth, right? In an authentic way. Um, So that's like one very important piece that I think actually speaks to your second point around trauma-informed care, right? This idea that, um, well, first of all, you know, in trauma-informed care, we try to to create this this situation kind of like we were speaking to around, you know, the the AA influence where it is peer-led, recognizing you know, stating clearly that there is a power dynamic in the room. I am a facilitator, right? I have the ability to um, kick somebody out of a group if I need to, or end the group if I need to. And at the same time, trying to level that power differential as much Mm -hmm. as possible, right? Recognizing it's never going to be perfect, right? Um, So that would be, a, you know, I think the first thing I look for in trauma-informed care, just working with traumatized youth and youth. And, and when I say traumatized youth, I'm really saying that because, you know, I was just in a group last uh, Saturday, right? I, I don't know, eight to 10 kids. And you can sense, right, in the room, just through body language and through my own training, just around kind of what, how does trauma start to look in a room full of kids? Right. And like you pointed out, it could be as simple as that one kid who every time he hears something, he's looking out the window like, what was that? Right. There's this kind of flight. Right. Response. Right. Or a fight response. And it keep again, like fight doesn't usually look like this. It can come up in a lot of different resistance, you know, in ways of resistance in the room. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's a, a, an important part of and uh, I think providing trauma informed care um, for youth, especially with mindfulness. Um, is first just recognizing and knowing what trauma is. And then secondly, recognizing that, for example, and you, you know this, right? Because you've taught in jails for much longer than I have, right? Everyone close their eyes. We're about to do a meditation. I never, ever say that. Because is it safe to close your eyes in a jail? Generally not, right? Even if they feel safe in the circle, right? There could be that. Mm, I'm not so sure if I want to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. So even just leaving the little things like that, just leaving the option open. If you feel comfortable closing your eyes, please do so. If not find a point in front of you and focus on it, just leaving that optionality for kids. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think another piece just to wrap this question up, um, you know, when my buddy awareness project is funny, you know, a lot of people think like we go in and we do, our group is like a 45 minute sit and then we do a, you know, check in for 15 minutes or 20 minutes and then that's it. It doesn't usually look like that. We try to 
introduce mindfulness in a lot of different ways, not only traditional formal meditation practice. While we do sits every session, sometimes they, one could be five, 10 minutes, right? And then we go into um, a module on self-compassion, for example, and kind of discuss the you know, the implications of that and what that might be, what, what that might look like to be able to turn, you know, love and compassion in inward rather than outward. Um, or we go into a psychoeducation around what trauma is and developmental theory and, and attachment theory even for, for youth. So, yeah, let me pause there and see if you've got any reflections on. What well, I you, you, you made so many important points. I'd like to just land a couple. First of all, Working with youth is very different than working with adults. That's right. So somebody who's experienced teaching mindfulness or guiding mindfulness with adults, that doesn't mean they're prepared to do it with youth. It's a whole different, whole different ballgame. And, uh, you know, there's this piece of being trauma informed. So we started off talking about relationship and, you know, talking about the circle and peer led, but also just the, the power of getting in relationship. Because the, the ground for, you know, trauma informed work is really safety, creating some, you can't create complete safety, but creating some quality of safety. And, and it's a relationship, like if you're in there and, you know, many of us have heard that we, both adult and youth uh, in folks who are incarcerated have pretty good bullshit detectors, right? They got great radar. Mm -hmm. That's right. And uh, they've been on the streets. They know how to survive. Right. And so, first of all, they need to know if you're real. Uh, then they, they need to feel you like you're there, you're present, you're in relationship with them and you're going to keep coming back. You're not a tourist. Right. So, you know, that, they, that, that creates that initial safety. Right. And that, and then you went on to, to, you know, talk about the importance of providing options. Right. Because with, with trauma, a lot of what happened, especially in childhood traumas, we didn't have options. We're trapped in, a, in an untenable situation of emotional or physical violence. We can't escape. We can't fight back. And so, Right. So, you know, they need those options and, and so forth. And um, also, you know, titrating how you introduce the practice or offering it in multiplicity of ways so people can connect with some kind of self-reflection practice, some kind of mindfulness, some kind of way without having to be. We're going to sit now for 45 minutes. Right. Which with young people probably isn't going to work even on the on the outside community. I've tried. It doesn't work. Right. That's right. You know, so. Uh, I'd like to bring up one more thing with you. You know, the kind of standard prison program, as well as I've known over the years, you know, it's very often uh, you come in and it's adults as well. You, you come in, you sit in a circle, uh, you do, you know, it, they, they, the order may be different. Right. But you do some sitting practice, you do some dialogue and you do some movement of some kind and whatever order or some mix thereof. That's kind of your standard. And, you know, with our. Um, uh, path of freedom work, we decided to create a mindfulness-based emotional intelligence curriculum that has some cognitive as cognitive behavioral aspects as well on the acceptance side of that. And and I know MBA created a curriculum uh, way back when. I, I was uh, with you guys a bit in that process. And so, you know, what we try to kind of following up on what you were saying, we really work in training our facilitators. Look, you got this great curriculum. You've got this whole facilitator's guide. You've got all kinds of ancillary materials and things. So all this stuff is in your back pocket. Mm -hmm. But when you go in that in that facility, whether you're working with, and we started off, the, the curriculum was developed for youth, but we have adult path freedom programs as well. Whether you're going there with adults or youth, your first job is to get in relationship. And then, you know, if the, if the theme of that week's session is about self-compassion, or about forgiveness. Okay, well, how over the course of that 45 minutes or an hour, can you get in a relationship, you know, 
guide people a little bit along the journey of developing some self-awareness practice and in some way, small or great, land the notion of forgiveness or whatever it is to team that week. That's all you got to do, you know, and you got all these resources, but it's not about coming in and just grinding away like a classroom instruction or something. Right. And uh, so anyway, maybe you could follow up on that, on the idea of curriculum based programs and then being able to do research, because I know you've done a lot of research on your programs because a lot of programs are not curriculum based and and it's harder to train facilitators to deliver deliver curriculum based programs with fidelity while at the same time empowering them to go in and just relax and be themselves and get something across. Yeah, no, I, I love the question. Um, I, I, I like how you framed uh, just the curriculum being something that's in your back pocket, mm-hmm. right? It's like, um, e- and Eve, I would even take it a step further. The curriculum is even something that completely can be dismissed for the day if there's something else happening in the room. Exactly. Right? So that's again, like that, that piece of like, are, am I trying to, you know, jam a round peg into a square hole, mm-hmm. right? It's yeah. gotta be self-compassion this week. And some kid came in and started talking about something completely different. And I'm like, cool, that's great. Let's get back to the curriculum, right. In the name of having to do the research and get right. the right. learning right. objectives done. Right. So that's been some hard learning for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just being able to be willing to just put it all aside and go with what is alive in the room. Right. And again, this takes a level of skill. It takes therapeutic skill. It, you know, you have to be able to read the room, understand that. And as I often say, you know, to, and this was taught to me by, by my mentors at MBA is the first intervention starts with myself. It doesn't start with the room, right? So if I, if I see resistance coming up in the room or something coming up in the room or like that, that idea that I am trying to jam that round peg into a square hole, I should be coming back to me first mm-hmm. and being like, what am I trying to do here? Like, what's my agenda? Right. Yeah. Oh, my really, resistance. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and kind of you pointed to this before. I can't remember in the context, but it's like, get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Micah, get out of the way and let what hap- let let it happen, right? Let the healing happen, let the let the change happen. Right. Because a lot of times as the facilitator, I can actually be in the way. Yeah. Of, 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 of that change. We use a lot that comes from console, another type of circle work, the way of console, but going with the slide. So if something's happening in the room, which may seem like it's completely disrupting what you were trying to do, or breaking all the rules and you know, whatever it yeah. is, it's very something disruptive. Like that's something alive. That's something to work with. That's where you want to go, right? That's exactly it. And the interesting thing about working with youth, if you're working with adults, they may let you get away with coming back to your agenda. Youth probably won't. If there's something really alive in the room, they're not going to let you go go get back on track with your agenda. They're going to go, no, we're going to deal with this now. It's It's such a learning experience to work with young people. They're so direct, you know? Yeah, there was a, an instance, maybe about a month ago or so, we had in a Bay Area juvenile facility, we had a, a kid who was, had you know, been in there for a while throughout COVID. Um, and we could talk about that a little bit too, right? And throughout COVID, and then we got back into the facility and, you know, was meeting with him and he was getting released. He had turned 18 and it was a direct release. Um, you know, again, we had our curriculum of the day and we had to do this, but we also wanted to do something honoring him. Right. Because he was leaving and we, you know, he had, you know, kind of been the, the elder in the group. Um, he was a, 
you know, at 18, he was the elder in the group. Right. But, um, you know, and, and I, I think definitely one of the leaders, right. This was a kid who, who started leading meditations, right. Cause at once kids reach a certain point, we'll actually open it up and be like, anybody else want to lead a sit today? And it's like, I'll try. And it's like, let them give them the floor. Right. So that, that sense of empowerment again, right. There's, there's mm-hmm. such healing in that. Cause as we pointed to before trauma removes power. Mm-hmm. Right. It removes a sense of power. It removes power. And to have somebody be able to be like, I can lead the set. So we had our agenda that day. And one of the facilitators, you know, Husna, she was, she was like, I want to do, I want to do like a, a sharing thing with him. Like, uh, you know, um, you might be familiar with challenge day and if you really knew yeah. me and that whole thing. Right. So, and which we use in the, and part partially in the MBA curriculum, if you really knew me, what we did, what we did was, uh, if I never see you again. Mm-hmm. Right. And we had Husna started it and she shared and tears started flowing. And I was kind of like, you know, I was checking it out because there were some new kids in the group and I was like, let's give it a shot and see what happens. And then another kid came up and, he started really speaking from the heart. Right. And we just went, we went with that, right. We got on that train and we took that train because that is where the power was, right. That was where the change was. That was where the healing was. It wasn't in the emotional intelligence curriculum of the day that would have been completely. Yeah. Uncalled for in a way. Um, yeah. Let me pause there. But that was, yeah, it was a really sweet moment. Yeah. 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 That, that, that ability to really, work with what's really alive in the moment in the room, be really connected in that way. So, you know, we've been talking about trauma and I think it's, you know, it's heartbreaking the level of trauma in some of these young people's Mm -hmm. lives. Um, You know, the place where we developed the path of freedom curriculum, Lookout Mountain, which is in Golden, Colorado, outside of Denver, maximum security juvenile facility. And it's about a 45 minute drive from where I lived in Boulder. Um, And I don't know how many times I was in tears on the way home Yeah, uh, because what some of these youth had been through and they'd never known anything but chaos and, and violence and disruption their whole lives. For some of them, it's a really a light bulb goes on to the extent if you are able to guide them into any kind of, you know, quiet or silent kind of city, even a few minutes are like, I never experienced that ever. That's right. right. That's right. But then so many of them, you know, uh, I heard time and time again uh, of you say, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to prison. I know where I'm going. That's where my uncles are there. My brother's there, you know, mm-hmm. and even our work in, in uh, Oregon, in the Oregon um, Youth Authority, there were so many times. I don't know how it is there in the Bay Area, the facilities where you work, but there were so many youth that when they hit 18 or 19, they're on their way to an adult correctional facility to serve more time. And they had already transformed. It was clear they'd been in this uh, uh, youth facility for five, six years. They'd gone through a tremendous process of transformation. And now they're going to send them to an adult prison, a state prison for another six, seven, eight, 10 years. Right. And it was just heartbreaking, heartbreaking to witness that. So I I think it's important to just for people to understand, uh, you know, the heartbreaking you know, there was a, a, another, uh, my colleague, our executive director, Vita Pires, would, you know, can attest to this. Uh, we worked in juvenile facilities in, in uh, Rhode Island for a long time. And that, I don't know, the group we'd go in is, sometimes I'd go in there and that, the, the kids that came into that group were so beaten down. Hmm. Like they all kind of murmured and whispered. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, at one mm-hmm. time, you know, Vita would, couldn't hear him. Vita was trying to, you know, she would challenge him. She's pretty adventurous, right? You know, and, and she probably got, a, a, and she just had his insight. Oh, yeah. You don't think people are going to listen to you, do you? Yeah, that's no, right. no, it all that's opened right. up. Nobody listens to us, you know, but that's they were right. so sometimes I walked out of there and I had to really kind of do some work on myself because I walked away feeling like these young people out there. I was just in a room with their lives are not going anywhere but bad unless a miracle happens. They that's were right. so beaten down already. But, I, you know, I would stop saying, no, you know, I'm a very hopeful person. I'm an optimist. You know, we're planning seeds. Something's going to happen. Right. But it, but it is important, I think, to recognize of how rough many of these young people have it. It's, it's so true. And, you know, I, as a systems therapist as well, it's like, you know, if I go up to the, the kind of larger view, right. You just see like, you know, that, the, for example, that, that kid who got released, you know, one of the biggest struggles he was, he was with, he's like, I don't know how I'm going to be on the outs and not carry a strap with me. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Not carry a gun with me. It's like, it's not safe for me to not carry a gun. Right. And, and he was kind of undecided on that. He was just like, I don't know how to, what to do. Right. This was a kid who's, you know, was a gang member and has gotten involved in, which we see younger and younger and younger. These kids are showing up 14, 15. They already got the tattoos. They already, you know, card carrying members, because as you pointed out, their brother is, their uncle is, everybody in their house is, the whole block that they live on is. So what happens is a lot of these kids, they get released. Yay. They're released. He learned some skills. Where did he go? Right back to the block where he got picked up in the first place, right back to the home where he got picked up in the first place. So, you know, to your point about losing hope, it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, right? Because there's, you know, especially with the youth work too, I, I could count on one hand how many times I've been in relationship with a youth who we served in a jail, who then got out and we were able to direct it because we don't have any type of aftercare, reentry programming, right? We, we work really direct services inside. Um, and it, it can be very, uh, I guess, sad, just like you pointed out, like heart, heartbreak, right? You use that term, right? Um, so I think like looking, just looking for the windows of hope, right? And looking, at, looking for those windows where like, I did see the needle move. Right. It was, wasn't, wasn't all the way, wasn't what I wanted, wasn't, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it was like, I could see that something changed. And again, in the spirit of trauma-informed, making sure we're calling that out when we see it, mm-hmm. even if it's a small change with a youth, right? It's just like, this is, again, this happened in the last couple of weeks. We had a kid who came in and you could just tell, I mean, he was thick with trauma, just thick. His body was tense. He was, you know, sitting like this and no eye contact and one word responses. And the second week we came back in and we were doing a check-in and he just, it just started coming. It just started coming to the point where I had to kind of be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like this is starting to become like a trauma dump because I think he felt a little taste of safety. Right. right? And had never been able to like maybe share his narrative in a space like that before. Right. And then the third week I could see like he was able to do that, but do that. Like you point out in more of a titrated way, like he would mm-hmm. share a little bit and then swing back and kind of, 
okay, am I okay? And then share a little bit more and then swing back. And I called that out. I said, wow, there's a difference. Did you notice that in yourself? Right. That there was a difference between this week and last week when you were sharing? And he was like, yeah, I felt, you know, that you kind of talked about it. And it's like, those are the types of successes that we have to look for. Absolutely. Really just about planting seeds and, and, and with the prayer that someday that those seeds will, will be there when they need to be there. Right. When that kid needs it. And sadly, it may be when he's sitting in a prison cell for yeah. a, another 10 year bid, you yeah. know, at, at Quentin or whatever. Right. But hopefully it can be before then. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to circle back and talk about post release in, in a little bit, because even though you all are not doing it, I still would like to talk with you about the possibilities. Please. And yeah. but um, but I'd like to talk about the time of the pandemic for a moment. And, sure. and but I do want to name one other thing about trauma informed, very important thing that, that you you brought up and of making the power dynamics transparent. I really love that, you know, that that, you know, you're trying to create a pure kind of led circle kind of group, non hierarchical as much as possible. But as a facilitator, you do have certain power. Mm-hmm. So by making that transparent, you that's part of that leveling process, as opposed to, you know, trying to ignore it or pretend it's not true. The more transparency, transparency is an is another aspect of trauma informed work. It creates yes. safety, right? Yeah, hundred percent. So, in terms of the uh, the pandemic, so many of us in this work, we had the experience that just overnight everything shut down. Uh, you were about to film your program, and and things shut down, right? Yep. The day before you were supposed to start filming, or maybe the day of. And so we've gone through this period where most correctional facilities, adult and youth, were not allowing outside volunteers, facilitators, contractors, anybody from the outside coming in. And it's been a really tough period. And so, you know, we scrambled as an organization to trying to find ways to keep, you know, we, we put our programs on, on DVDs and mailing them into prisons uh, and, uh, you know, still continuing to train and support volunteers. So, so hopefully when things reopen, we can, you know, uh, and we, we ended up stumbling into some opportunities to start delivering uh, the path of freedom over Zoom inside facilities. We're doing that in a, for men and women in a in a, a up, up upstate New York county jail, and we're doing it in a maximum security South Carolina prison. And we never thought that would happen, but it's happening now. We're also, uh, you know, uh, uh, a new wave in in kind of education within in, in incarceration is these secure tablets. And there's these big companies that are providing secure mm-hmm. tablets and the, 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 the facilities love it because it's more secure rather than us shipping books in that they don't like because they could have something smuggled in them. Now they're going to put it all in the tablets. These companies are making money off the, the FaceTime calls. You know, people are in cross mm-hmm. can do with their families, probably some exploitation there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in the phone companies got sued over that and we yep. won and actually we ended up getting some benefits out of that, some extra commissary things and some improvements to our, uh, exercise facilities. But at any rate, that's all happening. But we found that the path of freedom, uh, we got that on one of these, somebody just approached us and we got it with a company about six years ago. And then we, we kind of lost, we didn't know what happened to it. We finally got reconnected with them and, and we found out that 36,000 prisoners have done the path of freedom on that tablet now they're opening up the other company and we could get exposure to you know half a million or a million so you know these are kind of some developments and so i'm curious about what's what this time has been like for the mba project as well as you know things are starting to open up again 
And uh, and so what's that going to look like? You know, you know, a lot of the world of adult education and stuff, you know, where everybody's talking about the hybrid and integrating, you know, the online with the in-person. And, and I'm, so I'm just curious about where is the work going for your organization and where do you where? Well, what, let's start. What's it really been like during the pandemic for you individually yeah. and as an organization? And then where do you feel it's going now? Yeah. Well, in the beginning, as you pointed out, it was it was rough, right? It was rough. I mean, literally, you know, in the middle of cohorts, starting cohorts, as you pointed out, we had a, a filmmaker from France who was going to kind of be embedded with us for 10 weeks to do a documentary on the entire cohort and everything signed off. And then whoop, the plug got pulled. Um, I would what we did in the beginning was we tried to do some groups over Zoom. And we found it very difficult because it was like, you know, you've got a room of, all right, 10 kids. The camera is on one side of the room, mm -hmm. right? I'm a talking head on the screen, right? We've got kids sitting over in the corner. Their faces are covered with masks. The lighting's bad. And it's like, I can't hear people. I can't see people. So it was like, this isn't going to work. We can't deliver and it really made us realize i think this is a benefit but as there's also a in this case there was a you know i think a shadow side to it is like our work has to happen in person with these youth right and it, it is different from adults i think adults can be more self-led mm -hmm. right um yeah. often with adult populations there's you know there it's maybe not a mandated group or they they pick they want to be in that they've got this passion they want to learn something they want to transform them, themselves right so there's a there's a there's a motivation there where i think youth it's it's kind of the motivation partially comes from us showing up every week right it's just like okay i know mba is on saturday morning i told micah that i was going to you know try and sit for 10 minutes a day I want to make sure when he comes in, I could at least give him a good report, right? That is like, I got some of the sitting practice in. So what we did was we, we switched to one-on-ones. The ah, populations dude. plummeted. So they let out a bunch of kids at, at one time. I mean, we're talking facilities that could house four or 500 kids, 10, 15 in the entire facility. Wow. I mean, units closed, shut down, which happy, they're locking up less kids, beautiful, right? right. I had a feeling it was going to be a kind of a temporary thing, which we're right. starting to see it's, you know, creeping its way back up now. Um, we switched to one-on-ones and we had a couple different facilitators because again, they only had one computer, right? So it's not like you could have three or four different kids at the computer and then I could see them in the group. Right. Right. Um, so it was a real struggle. And finally, you know, we got back in and then they had a case and then they shut down for another three months and then we got back in for a couple months. And then, they, so that kind of happened again and again. And I would say now for the past four to six months, we've been pretty regular, um, going in. Um, now our group, I think we've got about 10, 12 kids in one group. Um, what we did do, and this is interesting, we had um, been, you know, we also do trainings, and, you know, so because we train, um, we have three kind of trajectories for our trainings. It's education, people who work in, you know, in, in justice. So whether that's uh, the sheriff's department or police officers or, um, you know, juvenile institutional officers and then mental health clinicians we had a relationship with the California department of education and obviously the stress that the education departments have been under has just been off the charts the last two years. So 
we really started doing a lot of online trainings with um, teachers, principals, admin, including mindfulness leadership coaching one-on-one, right? 10 hours of of our Calm Minds training, which is, you know, just introductory mindfulness, um, socio-emotional learning. Um, So that was really uh, a godsend, right? And that helped us carry through um, the pandemic until now we can get back in. And we're, we're still continuing those trainings. And, and yeah, really grateful. I mean, it's this, this one semester we've got, um, this one school year, we've got about three or four different contracts with a bunch of different regions in, in, in the state to do, to do work. So grateful for that. Wow. But it, it's been a struggle. It's, it's been very, very hard. And, you know, a lot of grief, just, you know, some of those guys that we were in the adult jail in Alameda, that was where the filmmaker was. Um, Never saw any of them again. These are guys that I had seen for, you know, a year and a half, two years I've been working with. And then no idea where they are. You know, so it's a lot of grief around that. It was was hard. It was hard. Yeah. Yeah, it is hard. And um, I want to talk about the whole release situation in a moment. Um, Now, I'm curious. uh, So you do work in the Alameda County Jail. You also done work in some of the surrounding counties, right? San Francisco County, some of the other. San Mateo, San Mateo, Santa Cruz, San Francisco, Contra Costa, most of the Bay Area counties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, let's talk about, um, you know, the post-release situation for a moment. You know, when we were uh, developing the path of freedom at this uh, Lookout Mountain in Colorado, the juvenile. So we really wanted to develop a, a post-release program, a re-entry program of some kind. But these youth were from all over the Front Range, yep. and from from all the way north to the border with Wyoming, all the way down to the border with uh, New Mexico, right? And so they're just released all over the place. Yep. So how could we possibly have the re? Where would we put a group? How would we run a group? You know, it's just impossible. You know, unfortunately, you know, uh, in you know, kind of Christian prison ministry. Uh, you know, it, it's a very Christian country and they have a lot of resources and there's churches everywhere and groups everywhere. You know, and also a lot of facilities will not let the volunteers who go into a facility have any contact with released prisoners, adults or youth. Right. And so some of the Christian ministries, they have they have some of their community go in and the other do the outside program. Yeah. And they do the handoff. Right. But, you know, mindfulness and, uh, you know, and Dharma, it's way too young in this country to have those kind of resources. Right. So, you know, when we when we moved uh, to Rhode Island, we thought, well, most of the and this was about mostly about the adults, but they were mostly being released into a few neighborhoods in Providence. We thought we'll we'll have a better shot. And what we ended up doing was partnering with some other organizations that provided post-release services already in that community. And we thought, we'll, we'll do a program there. But we still found that people coming out of facilities, they're just at survival. They're trying to survive. They're trying to, you know, they're dealing with the craziness of their life. They're dealing with their family. They're trying to, you know, make rent or get a place to live. They're trying to get transportation. They're trying to get a job. They're just trying to survive. Or, you know, trying to stay free of the of, of the crime game if they have that intention, you know, and they're just a survival and they don't really have the, the same bandwidth they had in the facility to focus on mindfulness and maybe do a mindfulness based emotional intelligence curriculum and do a lot of great work. They get out and they just don't have the bandwidth. So that was part of the problem. We did eventually uh, have some luck uh, and we have continued to do work with some big facilities in the Boston area that that support people coming out of facilities and out of homelessness with jobs training programs. And they're in there, they get housing for 
something like 16 weeks and they get a lot of training. They're kind of, they're, you know, they're kind of a captive audience. They get the housing, they get food, they get some job training and they basically do whatever, you know, they're asked to do in terms of the programming. So we've integrated our programs in there and had some success, but it's a really tough landscape. And, you know, that we talked about that hopelessness before. And, you know, this is more of a question for the whole prison mindfulness movement, prison Dharma movement, you know, until we find, I don't know how we're going to do it, but until we find some sense to have some sense that we can support people when they get released, it's going to be difficult to, to deal with the, the hopelessness, you know? I mean, that's one great thing, again, about the, the recovery movement, you know? Yes. Uh, they have enough people involved in, in going into prisons, but they also have people that can meet people at the door and mm-hmm. get them right to an AA or an NA meeting, right? And, uh, you know, so I'm just curious about your thoughts about this, because it just seems it's a passion of mine on how we're going to get there, but it seems like we have to find some way to provide people. So, because some people go really deep in both youth and adults, they get really, you know, they become real practitioners on That's the right. outside. Yes. And, but if they don't get any support for that and they don't have anywhere to go on the outside, it, it can, it can slip away pretty quickly. Yeah. I wish I had the, I wish I had the answer to give you. We have struggled as throughout my tenure here. And I don't think there's ever been a time where we've successfully been able to do any sort of group on a regular basis that's an aftercare group. Because even in a place like the Bay Area, right, it's so segregated, right, in certain aspects, right? There's kids from East Oakland. They've never been to San Francisco, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, There's kids in San Mateo who would never step foot in a certain neighborhood in East Oakland because it's they're wearing the wrong colors, right? So there's all of these other dynamics. And I remember that was a big one because there was a, there was a period of time, I want to say like six, seven years ago, where we were starting to kind of like, this came up again, right? It kind of pops up every year, every two years. It's like, ah, how are we going to do this? And we were trying, and I, w- I remember the feedback from kids was like, there's no way I could, how am I going to get to, even if it's downtown Oakland, I'm going to take the BART. I don't have money to take the BART, like to get to, you know, public transportation or all these kind of things. So it's been a real struggle with us. And I think the one thing that you pointed out, which I kind of think the answer lies in, and I just don't know how we get to it yet, is partnerships. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing that MBA, and I'll just speak frankly, that we haven't really done well at, right? Uh, you know, over, the, over our 20 years is like we've kind of, you know, gotten our contracts and been insular and just kind of head, you know, keep your nose down and keep just doing the work. But I think partnerships with other organizations, CBOs that, may be those people at the door, or there's some way to kind of corral around, for example, a group home, right? I think like specifically targeting that captive audience. And that's really the piece that you don't have any, when they get out, like you said, it's like between all the responsibilities and then maybe just like not really giving a shit anymore about mindfulness or whatever, because they forgot or it's only been three months and it's like, yeah, I don't have time for that or whatever. Right. So I think really trying to partner with companies, organizations, whatever it may be that, that can help maybe provide that captive audience. Cause I, again, I think that's the key piece for me, but it's, it's certainly something that we've struggled with. And I would love to see if, yeah, if anybody else at the summit's got some, got some answers maybe we can you know try to figure something out because it would be helpful yeah, for us as well i would too that's kind of i'm trying to plant some seeds here actually yeah. 
summit audience and, you know, I'll plant one more seed. You know, my Zen teacher, Bernie Glassman, you know, probably in the last decade of his life, he had a vision for creating what he uh, was. And this kind of came out of all this work at Grayson and what they did there. And Yonkers, a, a very impoverished mm. uh, African-American community that's actually now being gentrified. But, you know, the way things go. But at that time when they went there, uh, really uh, in, impoverished place uh, on every level and really struggling. And, and you know, they just went there and showed up. And ah, that grew this incredible Grayson model of projects yeah. that's still there today serving people. So he had a, a vision for a much smaller scale thing, the idea of creating what he called Zen houses. And, and he was actually training people to become like these, um, you know, these lay Zen urban minister activist mm. Zen house people who would go in and maybe in a, you know, right in those neighborhoods and rent a, you know, a funky house, a storefront or something, live there and just get in relationship with that community. And it seems like, you know, we can't expect, um, you know, people coming out of facilities that we're going to bring them out to the suburbs to, you know, some white upper middle class meditation group. Right. Nope. You know, we're going to have to, you know, and and it's about and and then I think about, you know, if you showed up there and you were there, it's not even just a traditional service situation, but you just start to attract people. And maybe even give them jobs and empower them to be running the houses and get, you know, just some somehow get in that community, attract, attract those people that are that are coming out of the facilities that somehow connected with mindfulness, connected with the Dharma. Give them a, a, a place somewhere in in their neighborhoods, in their communities where they can go connect, just like the churches are. The churches, you know, one of the reasons churches have survived in in our in our cultures because there's one on every corner generally you don't you don't travel halfway across town to go to your church mm -hmm. traditionally you could walk to church right it's not that quite that way in the suburbs anymore but but still there's usually a church in your neighborhood right and uh and so i i, I think you know we got to figure that out yeah i but i i think bernie was on to something as he was on to a lot of things right yeah. meet the people where they're at mm -hmm. don't expect them to come to you yeah, you know, and literally and metaphorically, right? And I think in this case, it's more of a literal sense. It's like I, I don't know if there's a better answer right now, right? And that takes devotion, the right people, and oh yeah, real dedication, lots of lots of scratch. That you know, that's and and again, that's the one thing. It's just like you keep running up against it. It's like we got our hat in hand, and it's like trying to just get through the next six months, right? Never mind open up a, you know, some sort of facility like that. And that's, the, I think that's the sad reality that many of us are facing in this work, right? Is, is, is just support for, for rehabilitation, right? It's just like, it's, yeah, the focus is on corrections, not facilitation, you know, not uh, rehabilitation. Yeah. Well, hopefully I, 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 you know, I've, like you, we've both been involved in this for a long time and I have sensed that there's an openness in the world of, of corrections to change. There is an open, even the people working in, in the system, maybe, you know, especially the, you know, the administrative, a lot of the administrative people and the leaders in the system, they have master's degrees, they have doctors, they're yes. more educated, they're progressive by nature, whether they're, they may be conservative or politically or not, but they want to do something. They want to do something good. And I think, you know, uh, there was a lot of big window of change coming, uh, you know, before the perhaps the Trump administration. But even he signed some some reform stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think there are possibilities. And 
And uh, one, of the, one of the inspirations around having a summit was to kind of re-empower the prison mindfulness, uh, prison Dharma movement, because we've all been just so trodden down during the yeah. pandemic, right? right. We, we, you know, because, you know, prison volunteers are such amazing people. They, they, they on, on their own hook, on their own dime, they travel hours and hours mm-hmm. to go to places out in the boonies and they get turned away because the paperwork. I mean, it's such dedication. Yes. And, and but they, they everyone uh, to a fault will say, I get so much more from this than I put into it. Right. And, you know, they've all had this taken away from them, their, their joy, their service, their, yes. their ability to go and yes. serve. And so, so, you know, happy that it's opening up again and hopefully we can, you know, create some energy around this movement and also attract, you know, some more support from it for, from, from funders and, and the government and so forth. Yeah. And I, last thing, just to speak to that, maybe to, you know, throw in a hopeful note, you know, at the end is, you know, I think our experience, especially working at the, you know, the sheriff's department here in Alameda County, which is substantial, you know, the facility there is very large and, you know, at the top levels, there's talks that are, pointing in the direction where I'm like, I could get behind that. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like you guys are using the right words. Sounds good. Like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. transformative and evidence-based and trauma for like, you know, those buzzwords are getting thrown out more and more. Um, and I, I think it's, I hope it's just a matter of time before we start to see that trickle down and start to shift within the facilities. And we know these facilities are very hard to change the culture in these places, yeah. right? Especially with the, the employees, it's actually right. easier to change the culture with the, with the, uh, you know, yeah, with the, with the, you know, the, the, the residents. residents yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, but that, again, that's going to take training of the CBOs and training of the CEOs and like all of, you know, all of these things that can start, you know, where we get people who are line staff now, who understand a little bit about MBA's curriculum and what they do and what we do, they can then point to it, right? If they see a kid starting to spiral out, it's just like, what'd you all talk about on Saturday? Remember mm-hmm. STOP? Remember whatever, you know, whatever little thing that they know. And then they can start to be there because the dosage, as you know, is, is key to that. So the, the more I think collaboration, you know, partnership and collaboration, I think, I think therein for, for me lies some sort of answer. Great. Well, it's been incredibly rich. Thank you so much, Micah. Thank you for your work and your contribution to the summit. Really great to connect and have this conversation today. Thank you, Fleet. Yeah, it's been an honor, honor to be a part of it. Thanks. Okay. Be well. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.